Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act. We call this the Afterglow. Welcome to the Afterglow. On today's show, we are excited to chat with Jennifer Besworth, Jenny B, as she's known. She loves words and stories. She's a TV producer, writer, podcaster, solo mama of two, problem solver, love note scriber, secret keeper, spider getter, fun time maker, master tucker inner, holding down the fort and hoping for the best. Jenny recently featured us on her podcast, This Is It Actually, discussing the afterglow. And today we get to find out about her afterglow. Welcome, Jenny. Hello. That was such a nice intro. <laughs> well, you wrote it and I thought it was one of the best bios that I've ever read because it's so true. Like all these little things that we do that go unnoticed, right? It's very Tucker true. Inner. And when I was first putting that together and I had to actually call it down because it was really long, I was listing all the things I do as a mom. And when you start listing those things, it's insane because we do all the things. So then I got it down to a nice place and, and Cynthia, who owns that blog, she was quite happy with that. So I just left it the way it was. I thought that it would just be a silly thing and then it ended up becoming my bio. <laughs> oh, it was beautiful. You're, you're so talented and gifted with words. And we want to dig into your writing and your podcasting and everything. But we'd love to start right at the beginning or near the beginning with your childhood. You grew up in a small town, 4,000 people. Your dad owned a general store. What was your upbringing like and how did it shape you? Oh, my goodness. Well, I do say that it really shaped the person that I am fully, um, whether that was because of my dad and who he was or just by virtue of having the store attached to my house. So my grandfather, my opa, he had built the store when he came over after the war. He was from Holland and he got here and I think he was thrown onto a farm and he was, you know, being asked to be a chicken farmer and he hated it. And there's many stories of, you know, him being up to his shoulders in manure. And he said, I got to do something else. And so he just built this little general store and then he built the house afterwards, actually in between the neighbor's house where they lived, and then the store, and then that became their home. So then years later, he offered it to all of his children because he didn't want to have it anymore. And my mom was a hard no. She was like, no, I don't want to do it. That was my childhood home. No, thank you. And my dad jumped in and said, yeah, no, that sounds really cool. I'd like to run a general store in a small town. And they were living in the city at that time. So it was a giant transition for them. But what I always say is that my dad, who was this sort of big city guy, really sort of moved into this small town life very easily and comfortably. And I think as a little girl watching these people come and go in and out of our store, but that was literally a door away from where I lived, I saw a cross section of people. Yes, we were in a very small town, so it wasn't the most diverse town in the world, but there were so many different people coming and going in that store. And I watched my dad talk to them and deal with them and be their friend. He called everybody brother. And I saw sort of this community from him so that when I eventually left my little small town and moved to the big city, I think I brought so much of that with me. I, I'm big on nostalgia. I'm big on manners. It's so important to me. Manners are huge to me. I have very old school sort of old lady mentalities <laughs> that I think I've brought from growing up in that store. And there was seven of us and a dog in a really a two bedroom house. They just kept shoving my siblings down into the basement as they got older. And it was very simple. I, you know, that's so cliche to say, but 
it was very simple, but it was just such a beautiful way to grow up. I'm so grateful for that experience. Well, you're an amazing storyteller because even just painting the picture of that small town, like I kind of want to be there in the town and see your little house. And so what, what are some of the stories that stick out for you in your upbringing or stories that you have created about yourself based on your upbringing? Well, I really do credit my parents, of course, and my my siblings are really amazing storytellers too, but both of my parents were really great storytellers. And I think the experiences that we had in that store have really become my stories. So I've been telling them forever. And I, even when I started the podcast, I thought, does anyone care about that? Like, these are my stories and who's going to resonate with this. It's amazing how, when you do start telling your story, you guys know this, somebody will hear their thing in that. So some of the things that I brought forward with me, you know, my dad, oh my gosh, there's so many, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But for instance, my dad, um, we had people come into our town every fall to pick apples. Um, My little town is, their industry is apples and apple juice and applesauce and all the things. And so people would come from different places to come and pick apples. And my dad became very friendly with all of these people. And he started a business where he would take his truck and fill it with all of the product from the store. And he would drive out to the, um, excuse me, he would drive out to the apple orchard to deliver food to the people that were out in the middle of the orchard and had no access to get anywhere else. And he would take me with him and he'd blare the music in the back of the truck and I'd get out and I I was like, this little girl, just what is happening? I'm standing in the middle of an apple orchard and I would learn Jamaican slang and I learned words, you know, from Trinidad and I learned all these things from just being a bystander and just watching all of this happen in front of me. So those kinds of things, you know, watching him, I really credit him is what sort of allowed me to be the storyteller that I'm, I am today. So um, Cheryl Strayed actually said, and I'm going to get this quote wrong, but Cheryl Strayed said that when her, her Nana was around 100 years old, I think, or approaching 100, and she told some fantabulous story to Cheryl. And Cheryl said, Nana, did that really happen? And she said, it doesn't matter because I'm the last one standing, so I get to tell the story I want. So As much as obviously it's very sad that my parents have passed away, I do get to continue to tell their stories. And I'm sort of grateful that I have had that opportunity because I actually don't know if I would have done it in the way that I'm doing it had they still been here. Mm -hmm. You mentioned both your parents passed away. I know your dad passed when you were, you know, in your 20s, which is which is early, right? Considering what you just described, the relationship you had with your dad, how impactful he was. And then your mom passed not too long ago as well. And um, being without parents is a thing. It's a it's a thing, especially in your 40s. So how are you? How are you making sense of that? It is a thing. And I, you know, I talk about this all the time to people who either have been through it, or even, you know, like I said, in my storytelling, it is, I don't think I expected to be as affected, especially at this point in my life, the way that I have been. She comes up in our stories, our conversation, absolutely daily. My girls, you know, they were little. It was only a few years ago, but my youngest was just turning six. And they remember her 
and the impact she had on their lives. But I also think it's because we continue to talk about her. And I think that I was this grown woman who had my life. I'm raising my children. And it was naive of me to think that having my mom pass away wouldn't have a really big effect on me. But I think because my dad had died when I was younger and I sort of went through all of that. And I also, to be fair, didn't think my mom was going to go. I thought that we still had quite a bit of time with her. When she died, I was shocked at how much it affected my life. And she was a huge help to me. I'm a single parent, so my mom was extremely helpful when it came to childcare and just sort of being available to me. But beyond that, I couldn't believe how much I just missed my mom. You know, I felt like a little girl again in a way. And someone described it to me as when you do lose both parents, it's like you're, you've lived this whole life climbing this mountain and you're standing at the top of the mountain. And now with them both being gone, there is nothing above you and nothing below you. So you're sort of trans, you're in this space, you're transfixed in the space that you almost feel weightless and there's no one that's going to catch you. And that's a very strange feeling to have in your forties because we do feel that we are where we're supposed to be for the most part, hopefully. So not having that, uh, not having her around has been a huge, it's been a huge sadness. It's also given me an outlet to speak about so many things. Um, I think about her every single day and what would she do? Which by the way, she would love. (laughs) She would be super into the fact that I'm still actually considering her thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, it's been, it's been, a, quite a journey actually to be what I really consider like an orphan or alone in this world without parents. So it's been very odd, but I've tried to kept, keep both of their memories alive as best I can. It sounds like you were um, deeply connected to both of them or you had a really um, rich relationship with particularly your mom anyways. What was what was she like as a role model growing up for you? Like what was the messaging you received around being a girl or just being in this world and growing up? Well, isn't it a shame that most of our lessons come to us after the person has gone? I mean, yeah, yeah, I wish there's so many wishes. My sister and I talk about this a lot. You know, I wish, I wish, I wish, but I would say that she had five children. She was an immigrant. She had a rough start. Um, And I mean rough in that of the time that it was. She lived through the Second World War. Her father hid Jewish people in their barn. I mean, she had a story. And I think that when she came to Canada and then she ultimately met my dad and she was swept up sort of by who he was, he was the worldly guy. But I think my mom just became duty-driven as a lot of women in that time did. So for me, growing up, my dad was the personality. My dad was the lesson giver and my mom was my mom. (laughs) And I wish that I, and I hope she knows that I didn't feel like that to the end, but that was, you know, growing up, that's sort of what it looked like for me. Um, I definitely knew that I could trust her when I was in trouble in school or if something happened, it was straight to mom, don't tell dad. Um, So I knew that I had uh, an ally in her in lots of ways. And I would say to you that we got very, very close when my dad got sick. I was potentially heading off to university. It was right at the end of high school and she, dad got sick and mom don't remember if she asked me to stay home and take care of him with her. I can't see that she would have done that, but Maybe it was sort of this unwritten thing. I was the last of five 
I was there. I wasn't sure what I was going to do in education. And I think it's just a role that we sort of slipped me into. So for two and a half years, it was me and my mom taking care of my dad. My brother ultimately did come home to help near the end because it became too much of a burden physically for us to actually do it. Um, But in that time, the gratitude I have for that space and that time with her is immeasurable. I can't even tell you. I mean, it would never, I don't think we would have become the people that we were to each other or had the relationship that we ended up having had we not had that experience together. So she really showed me in that time perseverance, strength, probably to a fault, actually, independence, because here's a woman who was really being taken care of by her husband and then all of a sudden had to do everything. And she was, he was, you know, the breadwinner because he had the store, but she was the heart of that house. And so I would say that every parenting move that I've made has really come from my mom or my sister. I watched the both of them and they are the ones that helped me make the decisions to this day of how to parent my girls. So she gave me a lot more than she probably knows that she did. Um, Jenny, before this podcast, before we started interviewing you, Julie and I were talking about how conscious you seem how aware you seem and you seem as you seem like someone who reflects on life, right? Who doesn't just let life pass her by someone who notices what's happening and then, you know, reflects on it, develops insights um, and tries to make sense of what's going on. And that seems inherent to who you are. And then you've also started this podcast. This is it actually right during the time of COVID in the middle of the pandemic. And so is that all, part of the podcast for you your podcast touches on some big themes well it's funny you say that about sort of being aware of the of things I it's to a fault really because it hurts me sometimes (laughs) because Mm. I almost take on too much of the things that I see I you know my kids have many stories about me just you know pulling the car over because I see something happening that doesn't seem right on the street or like oh mama do you have to like what are you doing now kind of thing and I definitely take on the world's concerns Mm -hmm. but it does benefit me in that way because I think being able to tell my story and then bring other people's stories is so important for all of us but really personally for me, it's a selfish move actually (laughs) to do this podcast because the way that it works, as you know, the format, I tell my story up front, whatever the topic is, the subject matter is, it might be one story that's really long and big, or it might be a bunch of stories that have happened to me throughout my life. And then I take other people's stories and I string them together almost like voicemail. It's that nostalgia thing again. I wanted it to sound Mm. like it was an answering machine. And so you will get snippets of other people's lives and other people's stories. And I think the important thing there is that not everyone is going to hear themselves in me or my story, but there's a really good chance if they're hearing four or five, six other stories in one episode, you might hear something that resonates with you from those stories. And I think that was always, when that came to me, when that idea, that part of it came to me, I felt like, okay, now I can make it. I'd been thinking about making a podcast for years and I really didn't know what it was. And as soon as I had that idea, I was like, oh yeah, this is it, which then got me the name of the podcast. I was going to ask you next, what, what is the name? What is this? Is it actually, what does that mean? That is literally it. So I use the word 
I use the word actually far too much. I love this. The, I love the movie Love Actually. Actually, 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 I've been teased because I say it so much. It's like other people's, it's my, like my kids says basically all the time. It's, that's my basically is actually. But when I got the idea and I was toying with names, I just said out loud, oh, this is it. <laughs> and so I tacked on actually, and that is how I got the name. <laughs> well, the consciousness or, or clarity that you demonstrate, as well as this, you know, telling of stories and this way of bringing people together, the connectedness, I think are big themes that are needed in our world. And I'm wondering if those are also things that help support you through the D word, which is I know a word that a lot of our <laughs> listeners will resonate with, but but divorce was a big experience in your life recently that also shaped you. So what can you tell us about that? I will tell you that I was divorced. When did I get divorced? Oh my gosh. I have to look. I have our wedding date tattooed on my finger. So I do the math from that. <laughs> so we got married in 2004 and we ultimately divorced in 2010. Nope. We got married in 2004. We divorced in 2011. That is some time ago, certainly. It's not that, that long ago, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things. But I do still talk about it quite a bit because, as you say, it was a very, it was a very big thing in my life, as it is for lots of people, I'm sure. For me, I married somebody who was in the public eye, and I became, for all intents and purposes, his wife. And I was very happy in that role for a time. I loved the band. I loved what he was doing. I loved being that person. I loved gathering my friends around to come and see him play. So I was never, I wasn't bitter about that when it was happening. I think when I got, we got further into the relationship and of course we had kids and he was still living that same life and I was starting to grow and move and change. I didn't want that role anymore. I wanted to be something different. And it's not to say that I was at home not doing my own thing. I was. I was obviously working and I was doing lots of other things. So I'm not trying to paint a picture that I was being put in this box that I didn't want to be in. But I think that I really saw it from an outside perspective once I became a mom. And so when we divorced and we came to that decision, and it was a mutual decision, it was very, very ugly for quite some time. And I was sitting deep in the muck of that relationship ending, what, what it was to me, who I was without him, all of these mutual friends and these people that knew us as a quote unquote perfect couple. And it took me so long to come around to figuring out that all of that muckiness and that anger and all of the things that I was harboring that were ill will towards him and the relationship and all of that was just harming me so severely. And I was in the shower one day and I had one asleep and one in kindergarten, I guess. And I was sneaking in a shower, as you know, has to happen when you quickly put your child to sleep. And then I ran in to have a shower and I was just going through the motions. And all of a sudden, it just, it's the craziest thing. I felt like this weight lifted right off my shoulders and tears just started pouring out of my eyes. And I was like, holy shit, this is you. Everything that he's doing has nothing to do with you anymore. You own all of the feelings that you have. You have to let this go. 
and it was the most freeing moment of my it was the most freeing moment of my life. I can't tell anyone how to get that moment. I don't know how to prescribe that to anyone except that when people do ask me and people do ask me about the divorce because I've written and talked about it so much, you know, how do you get there? How did it happen? I don't think I'll ever be there and I'm not a therapist. <laughs> this is just personal experience. But really trying to separate that hatred or that anger from who you want to be because we all know that all of that stuff has nothing to do with you. The way somebody is behaving towards you when it's that negativity has nothing to do with you. So I was doing that to him. He was doing it to me. And we were in this swirling place of just ugliness. I owe it to, I, I liken it to being down in a ditch and crawling out of a ditch and how that feels and how hard that is to lift your body up from that situation. But once you're sort of on solid ground again, there is such a freeing space. And now, you know, he's not involved really with the children very much. He lives in a different province and he's remarried and has children with his wife. But he and I have come to such a beautiful place that it could never have happened if that didn't happen, if that shower moment didn't happen for me. Hmm. I'm connecting the dots a little bit in your story of um, just the story about your mom and being so independent and caregiving and nurturing and now having that impact and role model to you and how, you know, you're in this situation now with your girls where you're single parenting and really single parenting because you're not sharing um, you know, the role with your ex-partner. And, um, you know, here you are today uh, with these two girls. They're almost both teenagers now. How old are they? So I have a just turned 14-year-old, so smack and teen world. And I have an almost 11-year-old. So nice. I've got a tween and a teen. <laughs> yeah, so they're of an age where they're, you know, really impacted. And they're um, seeing and obviously being, you know, you're their role model right now as well, right? And so I'm I'm curious about a couple of things on this sort of little pathway that I've just paved here. <laughs> okay. Is um, because I, I too am divorced. And so I understand that hatred and the resentment and the stuff that you feel, but that you have to let go of. But it still will always a little bit exist in that particularly when you're like battling over whose responsibility is what. And you seem to have, have freed your ex of those responsibilities so that, you know, I, and I'm making this up, <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming so that you can be free of the resentment, right? Yes. So how are you now messaging or role modeling relationships or, how to be in a relationship with for your daughters, right? If they're not seeing their dad in the relationship, is that is that something that you're conscious of? Oh, that's such a good question and such an amazing observation because it's not something I ever considered, obviously, when I was swirling around in the first couple of years of the divorce or the separation. And then, of course, he found someone very quickly, and that was all part of the messiness. And I really was just trying to survive. So I was majorly in survival mode, and it was that meant feed them, get them to bed, get them to school, whatever they needed, and don't deal with me. And so then I think when I was able to start dealing with me, and I really started thinking about that, it was a bit of a mind blowing thing for me. I'll tell you two things. The first thing is, 
I was at my best friend's house. Her brother was there and we were talking about dating and I was really just, no, no, no. Um, didn't want to date. I met someone about a year and a half after, um, uh, my divorce and he was lovely. He was actually a really wonderful first boyfriend to have, but it didn't work out. And I just thought, no, I just want to focus on the girls. That's what I want to do. And my friend's brother said to me, he looked at me and said, but wouldn't it be nice for the girls to see someone loving their mom? Mm -hmm. And I burst into tears. <laughs> I was like, what are you saying? I'd never even occurred to me. It didn't con I never considered that. I didn't consider that that was something. I have a ton of friends. I have a ton of diverse and different types of friends. I have single friends. I have married, divorced, kids, no kids. You know, there's a, you know, gay, straight, there's a spectrum of people coming in and out of this house. So to me, that felt like enough. And you know what? It is enough in a lot of ways. But what I think that I was really against was bringing somebody else into this situation because I was just trying to figure it out. So I thought that would be, make it messy. So that was one thing. And I carried that with me for a very long time. I'm clearly still carrying it because I think about it quite often. The second thing is, and you can laugh at this if you like, Gilmore Girls has been very yeah. helpful. <laughs> so I was waiting to watch this with my oldest daughter. I'm not watching it with my youngest yet. Um, but I'd been waiting and I couldn't even rem remember why I was waiting for it. I was like, is it that good? I mean, are we really Lorelai and Rory? I don't know if we are. It has opened up so many conversations between the two of us. Mm. She has a dad that's not really present and he kind of shows up on the motorcycle and he's the cool guy. And we have a similar situation to that. And she's trying to navigate her own path with him and she doesn't really know what that looks like and I am just standing by to support and it's hard because as much as we are okay I definitely there are things I could say for sure that would negatively impact their relationship she is figuring it out on her own so that's what I would also say is that my mom and my friends have definitely questioned my decision to be okay with my ex-husband um, and they understand it and why it is the way that it is but there has definitely been people that don't understand it and I have had moments of are they going to want to move in with him when they're teenagers or is there going to be a moment where you know I'm the bad guy and he's the good guy because he's there's been no discipline there's been no sort of um, guidance from that side of the fence. But here's what I will tell you. They figure that out on their own. Mm -hmm. Kids are very smart. Time is a thing that time basically gives them the, the ability to make their own decisions. So I thought I was going to have to make all of these life lessons and I don't. They're watching me. I got it from my mom, as you say, they are figuring that out and I'm really just sort of standing by to support and to guide. An interesting thing that happened, an interesting thing that happened in the fall was my oldest didn't actually want to speak to her dad and he would be totally fine that I'm telling the story. And my youngest doesn't understand that. And my oldest said, well, you'll get it when you're older and kind of blew her off. And my little one looked sort of hurt and confused by that. And so I actually brought her back into the room and I said, so she actually might not get it when she's older. 
that's your experience. And I think what would be really helpful for Izzy is if you actually explain why you're in the situation that you're in. And then I sort of just sat back and let the two of them have the conversation. And let me tell you, that was like, I was patting myself on the back for sure that day because we don't always have the good answers or the right answers. But that moment where, because I was tired and I kind of also just wanted to go to bed. So I wanted it to be over, but I thought, no, I really, it's not fair to Izzy to not understand. And so they had that conversation and she got it. And I didn't really even have to do anything. Mm. I, I was patting you on the back when you're telling that story too. <laughs> I mean, that is a huge parenting win. And lately I, I hope that we only need a few of those. Like we don't, you know, just a few of those make a difference. They don't have to happen all the time. I'm curious also about the wife box and how that was a box that it had seemed that maybe your mother was in or that you had seen your mother in. And then there was a part of you that said, I don't want to be in the wife box. And now you're free of the wife box. And so what has, what has shifted for you now being free of that box? Well, what's really funny that I also didn't expect because life is like that. I'm so against it (laughs) that I do catch myself sometimes. I'm very careful. I always say that, you know, I don't, I start sentences with, I don't want to be the bitter divorcee because I really don't. Um, But I really, I really do feel quite free of it. And I can't imagine ever doing it again. The, The hindrance of that is dating people and being with someone. I am currently in a relationship and it's my real first significant relationship since my divorce. And I have got about three and a half walls up around me. (laughs) So I had half a wall come down. So that independence thing, I've almost swung too far the other way, if that's even a thing. And maybe it's not. And he's very patient and understanding. So I think once I was in the box, I got free of the box. Now I definitely don't. I'm like, you know, fighting tooth and nail to not get put back in that box. But I think because of my mom subtly and, you know, as a little kid, you would never think that you would never look and say, oh, my mom is, you know, she's really ruled by sort of the role that she's been put into. It really wasn't until later in life when she and I took care of my dad and she ultimately got herself her own job, which by the way, my dad was not happy with. So that's how old school we're talking here. And she had to fight for that. So I watched both sides. And once she was independent and free after my dad had passed away and really started to live her life on her own terms, I also watched her not to want to be put back into that box. So I am as much as you don't want to necessarily admit that you are your mother's daughter. (laughs) I am definitely following in her footsteps in a lot of ways. So I think as someone who does try to be very conscious and tries to be enlightened as best I can, and I'm working on that all the time, I know that I have to split the difference somewhere. I know that I want to be in a relationship that is healthy and loving and beautiful to not only show my girls, but because I deserve it. But I also need to be able to say that it's a partnership. It is not just a one-way street. I Just because I was in that situation before where I felt a little bit downtrodden, if that's the word, it doesn't mean that's where it's going to go again. So I think really trying to look at it from many different angles and it doesn't have to be one way or the other. That's again, part of um, that whole consciousness, right? Like being really thoughtful about what's happening for you in your life and, and, and the whole, you know, being put into a box and then wanting to break free of that. That's really a, a theme for our podcast, which is, you know, there's these sort of social constructs that are created for us, like being a wife and 
being a mother and then the expectations and the roles that go along with that. And, um, you know, you have broken free of that in a, in a, in a different way, right. By, by separating yourself completely from that. But through that, you have had all of these um, amazing other experiences. And, and part of that is, you know, you've created your own career and you're a TV producer. And so is that, um, does that come from this sense of maybe almost feminism or wanting to be your own person or wanting to break free of the box to have gone and found your own career and be driven that way? Like, where does that sense come from for you to, to, um, to break through the limits or, or push through the boundaries? Well, it is funny because I think that I've had many conversations with friends where we talk about how different my life would have been had I actually stayed in my marriage and it would have been drastically different. Mm -hmm. So I do, I credit a few things and probably my dad taking care of my dad and him passing away at a young age, watching my mom become independent, ultimately getting divorced and going through that relationship in one way and then getting divorced and knowing that really once I came out of that, I was on my own. You have your community, you have your village, you have your friends, you've got your family, all very much there and available and wanting to be relied on, no question. And I am, you know, ever grateful for all of the things that people have done for me. I wouldn't have really been able to do it without them. But at the core of it, it was really by necessity in a way, because all of a sudden, when I really snapped out of it, I was like, oh, boy, I am fully responsible for these two people because the child support may not come. <laughs> the He's not living here. The person that I was going to do this with has nothing to do with this. So I think I knew that I had to not only be a good role model for them as a single parent, I had to also make sure that I was doing all the things I needed to and could do to be a good person for, for me as well. And because I didn't want to just get caught up in, you know, just being the mom to them. And, and like I said, going through that sort of treadmill, I knew that I also had to find fulfillment somewhere in there as well. So I really looked to so many of my amazing female friends who are just like, you know, killing it in their industries. And again, back to my mom who really did a massive pivot <laughs> in her own life after my dad died. So I really would give the credit to most other people to push me forward because um, it's not always easy to do it for yourself. You really need sort of role models and other people to look at to do that. You're in your forties like us, I believe. I am. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, we think we've heard you say that the forties is where it's at. So uh, how do you, how do you live that? I never thought that I would ever say that. Um, I remember watching, there was um, an episode of it was Oprah and she was talking, I believe, to Halle Berry. And I think she had a few women on the panel. And I remember one of them, and I do think it was Halle, said, I am, I love my 40s. I am everything that I wanted to be. And she went on waxing on about how amazing the 40s were. And I remember going, all right, Halle, take it down a notch. Like, <laughs> what does that even look like? All of this happened, all of this trauma in my relationship happened as I was turning 40. And that seemed like, oh boy, what are the 40s going to be? I didn't imagine that they could be 
great, or I didn't imagine they could even be survivable, actually, in the construct of what I was going through. And for my 40th birthday, I invited five of my girlfriends from different parts of my life to join me in New York. I'd never been to New York, and they didn't all, they all knew each other, but they certainly weren't from each other's worlds. And we got there and I was in the bathroom getting ready. I was curling my hair and they were all out in the living room and they were just chatting, having some wine. And one of my girlfriends, whatever was said, one of my girlfriends started to open up about the fact that her marriage was not well. I didn't even know this. And now she's telling a virtual group of strangers and I ended up double curling my hair because I stayed in the bathroom <laughs> to let them have this conversation. And that opened up one of the other women talking about a career change. And it just, it was like a domino effect. And I stood in the bathroom and I started to cry actually, because it felt so special to me. And then I thought, oh, this is my forties. Okay. I get it. So it has been a ride and a roller coaster dating in the 40s. I mean, don't even get me started. There's so many things that we could talk about parenting and sort all of it. But at the end of the day, I am more myself than I ever have been, obviously. And I wish that you could go back to your 20-year-old self and say, so here's how it's going to go. And these are the things that you should know. That's not the way that it is. Trying to impart that to my younger friends. I have tons of friends in their 20s and 30s. So I try to give a little advice when I can without being overbearing. But it has been this decade so far has been really the most enlightening and the most getting back to myself than any other decade. Tell us about the tattoo you have on your arm that says next time I'll be braver. Ah, of course you saw that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so funny because that one I don't really think about very much because it's in a funny spot that I don't see it, but people see it. And I've had people turning their head, you know, on the subway to try to read it. Um, I got that after my divorce. So it's an Adele lyric and I'm not a big put lyrics on uh, my body, but that one, that song, that line, that was everything to me after I sort of came up and out and I saw the clearing and I realized that all of the lessons up until that point and everything that I'd been through, the good, the bad and the ugly really got me to the moment that I was in. And if I could just continue forward being my bravest, most authentic self, then I might just be okay. (laughs) You brought up your 20 year old self. One of the questions we like to ask is about your 15 year old self. And, And so we're curious What would you say to your 15-year-old self? Oh, my goodness. I have an almost 15-year-old, so that's really crazy and weird. Um, Great 10 Yeah, great 10 Okay. Great 10. Let me think about this for one second. I mean, I'd say stop. Don't smoke menthol cigarettes. That's one thing I would definitely say. That's (laughs) That's good advice. (laughs) Um, Oh. You know, I wish that she, I wish, this is everyone's wish, I'm sure, but I just wish that she could have been a little more comfortable in her own skin. I, I came from, because I was the fifth child, I was a little bit set up to go into high school. My siblings were all pretty popular. They all did sports. They were very well known in the school that was a little bit of pressure. It took the pressure off. It put the pressure on in two different ways. And I think that I wasn't the same as them. 
So I think I carried around a lot of, you're not, you're not everything you could be. And I definitely relied on self-deprecating humor. I definitely relied on being a little bit of the oddball, although I don't know if that's how people would remember me, but certainly it's how I see me, you know, shave my head, like whatever sort of thing that I could control. So I think if I, if I could talk to her, I would just say, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Stand up for yourself a little bit more. Don't be worried about what people think of the things that you believe in. And just be a little bit more comfortable in your own skin. Mm-hmm. That whole comfortable in your own skin, I mean, that's, that goes so deep for so many women, I think, because we're taught to just, like, be for everybody else, right? And that's, like, emotionally with our voice, but also physically. And I remember seeing one of your Instagram posts where you, you talked about your physical self and as you're aging, as you're getting older, getting more comfortable with your body. So how does, like, aging physically feel to you? I hate it. So that's my honest truth. (laughs) Like, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm totally fine with it. I don't love it, you guys. Um, But, and I've done things, like I've done all the things, not all the things, I've not done all the things, but I've tried Botox and I got my teeth straightened, you know, sort of in my mid thirties, which that was a confidence thing. So I don't, I don't look at that necessarily as a vanity thing as much, but I've definitely done things. And at the beginning of the pandemic, at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, the gray and I got, it got in there like pretty good. Like I had a solid, probably two inches. And there was that moment of, am I keeping it? Am I not keep, like, is this it? Am I just doing it? I didn't, as you can see, but I really want to be so much more comfortable with what I see in the mirror. I want that. I want that for my daughters. I want it for my friends. I want it for me. What I would say is dating in your 40s, getting naked with somebody in your 40s is like the scariest. So, (laughs) but that also sort of forces you to just go, well, this is it. (laughs) Not to quote my own podcast, but (laughs) this is it actually. I mean, it really is it. What am I going to do? It's like, you can't hide from that. So I've definitely had more moments. And I will say, I have stripped down and I have stood and I have taken it all in and I can criticize many, many things. There's still childhood insecurities, of course, but I have stood there and thought, you know what? That is what it is. That is yours. You are moving. You are breathing. You are healthy. You have, you know, these two beautiful children. Your body does basically what you ask it to do you need to be grateful for that. And that does flip the script a little bit when you are really forcing yourself to look at yourself naked in the mirror and remind yourself of all the wonderful things that your body can do for you. So I don't love it, but I'm getting better with it. Thank you for being honest about that. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that's part of the conditioning too, you know, the, the, the way a wife is supposed to be and the way a woman is supposed to look, it's part of our conditioning and it's really deeply ingrained and um, it's just in there. (laughs) It is. Social media does not help obviously, which is my concern for having two daughters, especially. Um, And funny, this week's podcast episode is about being beautiful and I get people to weigh in on their versions and their definitions and how aging and beauty. So you've hit it right on the nail, nail on the head for me, but it's 
social makes it very difficult because mm-hmm. you do cost and compare and you, you know, think about what could you do? And my girlfriend always makes me laugh when we talk about, you know, going for a treatment or a facial or a Botox or a, um, you know, a collagen, whatever it is. And she always says, well, I'm just going to tell them to start at the top and work their way down. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm okay with that too. I have no judgment for any of the things that people do to make themselves feel beautiful by any stretch. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. But I think that social makes it very, very difficult Mm -hmm. to be comfortable if you're constantly looking at another person that you either want to emulate or don't even want to emulate, just think that you should be on par with. Mm-hmm. Well, I had dug into some research a little while ago about this too, and there's been so many, you know, programs in terms of empowering girls, which are having an impact. Girls today apparently think they can be leaders more so than they have in the past, but the body image issue is still there for a lot of them. It's still, and if you go on TikTok, you know, I have daughter, a daughter the same age as your 14 year old. You spend one minute on TikTok and you'll see that the body all the time. <laughs> yep. <laughs> one, one of the other questions we love to ask is um, what is your afterglow? And um, this was a theme that you did in your recent podcast when you're interviewing us. And one of the things you said is that the afterglow is that life fork in the road where one way is the same thing it's always been. And the other is possibly a new and different adventure that feels scary and far too young for my middle-aged blood. We loved your words. You said the afterglow is also the golden road, the one that's never too late to take. So what is that road for you? What is your afterglow? Oh, you guys helped me with that. Let me just tell you, because when I really had to start thinking about what my afterglow was, because I wouldn't say that I ever really thought about that. That's what came to me. And I thought, oh, gosh, isn't that nice? That's such a nice vision of going down this sort of other road that is that is good for you just as much as the things that you've done in the past and not to be scared of that. It is scary starting a podcast at my age or starting something new at my age. Um you always think that there's sort of this end game or this end road, and it just doesn't have to be like that. So women like you definitely help me remind myself that it's going to be okay. <laughs> and you can actually start and do whatever you want, whenever you want. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, if I, can, if I can really be true to myself and the things that I love without worrying about what the masses or what other people think, that will be really, really good for me if I can stay in that space. Mm. You probably do this as well, but I think about, and I think you talked about this actually with opening the yoga studio with your ex-husband, especially Julie, like, you know, questioning if someone tells you that it's not going to work or someone's doubting you, you take on all of that stuff. So how can I just say, I really like making this thing. That's good enough. So my afterglow is all about being okay and accepting and loving all the things that I'm doing just because I like it (laughs) and not worrying about, because I've spent my whole life, haven't we all spent our whole life, women, girls, especially worrying about what other people think. And I don't want to do that anymore. So my road is paved with only the good intentions of myself and also the things that I love and want to do. Hmm. I absolutely love that as you know um you have just this calm and grounded presence like really really lovely and I don't know if this is just you know your personality if you've always been that way or if you have any practices that help you to you know get into this place or be in this state do you have anything that you can share with us 
If you ask my ex-husband if I've always been calm, I would suspect that his answer would be slightly different than that. I would say that when I started doing yoga, um, that was a huge game changer for me. It took me many tries to walk in the door. I was super scared. I got up to the door. I actually opened the door slightly and shut it. Uh, and it was two more times, I think, before I actually walked in. Um, the person that was at the front desk of my yoga studio was the person that made me actually walk in the room. So I still credit him to this day for that. Yoga, for sure. I would say that learning to meditate, I'm terrible at it, but I don't think anyone's actually good at it. Um, taking those 10, 15 minutes every single day to try and just be at peace, even if I'm thinking about the meals ahead or I'm thinking about the grocery list or whatever, just to be able to sit in the space. Although I was meditating a couple of weeks ago and one of them yelled for me a couple of times. And I think I yelled in the middle, I'm effing meditating. So that's not <laughs> meditating. So don't do that. <laughs> and then I just shut it all down. I was like, forget it. Um, so I would say those things. I would say that um, writing, like writing is my release. My podcasts, um, because I have people weigh in they do, the way they do, I write my stuff first. And it's, I know that having an interview, I can do that as well, of course, because I've done that my whole career. But for me, having those words get out on paper, that is definitely very calming and grounding for me. And when I haven't written, someone told me, write every day. It doesn't matter what it looks like, even if it's a list. And so when I started taking that practice and of just making sure that pen was actually on paper every single day in some form of another that definitely, definitely helped me as well. So I'm not always calm, you guys, but <laughs> you're bringing a calm presence to me. So mm -hmm. it's easy. <laughs> well, and we love hearing your voice on your podcast. Yeah. So we want to make sure everybody goes and, and checks that out, checks this nice. is it actually. Absolutely. Any, any last, I guess, words of wisdom you'd like to share? You've covered some pretty meaty topics on your podcast and you've spoken, you've had voicemails delivered from some really interesting people. So any last words of wisdom you'd like to share? I mean, I end my podcast with now go say something nice to someone. Mm -hmm. So for me to try to find kindness, especially in the world that we are living in right now, it has been a hot year for many things. And I think that if we could all just afford everyone just a little bit of grace and to go to another podcast, Dax Shepard, um, he he, one of his early podcasts was, was with his wife, Kristen, and they were sort of having an argument about driving. And he said that, you know, he's just a manic driver and he just hates every other person in the cars and thinks that they're all terrible drivers and he's the best driver ever. And Kristen, her, she's the exact opposite. And she says, what if they're trying to get to the hospital? What if there's a pregnant person? I mean, these are two extremes, but I really try to, and I really try to instill this to my children think about what that person's day was. And if you can afford just the tiniest bit of kindness, and I know with masks, that's hard because my thing used to be, if I really don't like you and I think you're being a bit of an a-hole, I could at least try and smile to you. Now I can't do that. So <laughs> somehow affording a kindness to someone really can change a person's day. And I just, I really believe that we never really know where a person has come from or what they're going through. So if we can all just maybe find a little bit of patience and space for that, maybe, maybe we could all be a little bit kinder to each other. That's amazing advice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here today. Where can we find you? 
So you can find me on Instagram at this is it actually and under my own personal at Jenny Besworth. And I'm on Facebook, just my name, Jenny Besworth. Excellent. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Loved having you today. It was thank so you, awesome. Jenny. Thank you so much. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow Podcast Official and take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.